I know, I know, it's been a while since the last episode, but trust me, it was all worth the wait. My guest this time is Sean Adams, the founder of Drowned in Sound. You may or may not know Drowned in Sound, but it's been a pillar within the music journalism sector. A great point of reference for people like me, who used to dream about becoming music journalists. And Sean Adams is actually a great example of everything that I ever thought about music. His passion and how music has been a driver for everything that he's done. And it's been the main focus of everything that he's ever done and still does. So Sean, of course, started out as a music journalist, but also delved into music management. He's still a manager for people like the Anchoress. She's been on the podcast before, so go and check that episode out. And also, he has released records. He used to run a club night. He's been involved in many different areas of the industry, including social media marketing for the likes of BBC Radio 6. He talked a lot about all of this, not really following a specific timeline, but rather just a train of thoughts that was very, very interesting. And I think it would resonate with many of our listeners because it's not just about one area of the industry. I think it just cuts across the whole of it and it's just so fascinating and inspiring to so many of us. I'm not gonna say anything else. I will say that it's a pretty long episode, but it's completely worth it. Get ready for amazing talk about some of your favorite artists, anecdotes and stories, and just this amazing passion about music that made me think, you know, me and Sean could be best friends. Enjoy it, share it, tag us at ICMP London across social media. Let us know what you thought, and thanks for listening. Hi, Sean, how are you? I'm wonderful, thank you very much. Oh, great. Oh, I love that. Okay, cool. That's better than I'm good. I'm wonderful. Great. Okay, thank you. Thanks well, for joining me. So, sometimes I do quite graphic answers to that question, and I decided that probably it's a family show. <laughs> okay, let's stick with uh, wonderful. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah, thanks for finding the time, first of all, and, and for joining me today. I would love to start talking about you, and, and I, I always go from, you know, the background of the guest, and of course, because it just makes sense, because not everyone would know you necessarily. And um, this time, I think I want to start with something a little bit different. I was, of course, researching you. Um, I knew who you were, but I was kind of like looking into it, all the things that you've done, and there are so yeah. many, so it's it's pretty impossible to know the, about them all, but... Of course. The, I mean, I've probably forgotten half of it, so don't worry. Fair enough. That's great. But the um, music journalism bit, of course, is, is pretty big because I believe it's how you started kind of in yep. the business. And so I came across this piece that you wrote for Drowning Sound. We're going to talk about Drowning Sound, of course, as well. And it's called Music Journalism Rest in Peace. And it's from 2009, so it's pretty, it's pretty old. Um, but the very first few lines are so good because they, I think on a personal level, they describe exactly what I was feeling when I was growing up about music journalism and how it just fueled my passion for music, basically. And um, it still does, you know, in, in different ways. But um, I think it's just really, really good. And I think it's nice to get a sense of who you are and how you think. So I'm just going to read mm -hmm. a couple of lines from it. 
So you're saying it wasn't just reading what these fit to burst enthusiasts had to say about releases, which informed both my knowledge and taste, but it was their ability to articulate it. For a few hours each week, I was captivated by the combination of worldly wisdom and words, which would never be found in any of the books on the school reading list. This really hit me. And the fact that these funny F with the reference points I often hadn't heard of were writing about music like it mattered more than anything ever made them like the older siblings and impossibly cool friends I had always wanted. It's so good. <laughs> it just... I know who wrote that. That wasn't me. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it was me. <laughs> oh, okay. But I just like some, sometimes I write and I almost disconnect from the person that's writing it. So it's quite, um, yeah, it's quite an out of body experience to hear your own words being read back. It's, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's weird, but also nice. Cause it's, again, it's been a while, like 2009 mm. is quite a while back, but yeah. So I thought this could be a really good way to start the conversation about how your love for music and of course your career. Yeah, but weirdly, as you were talking, all I could think about was I used to buy Melody Maker on the newsagents at the end of the road on the way to school. Um, every Wednesday morning, came out in London on Tuesdays, but came out in where, where I grew up in Dorset on a Wednesday. Um, I think it probably in Italy, you probably didn't get it until like the Friday, um, if, you, if at all. Um, and so I'd get it on a Wednesday morning and I'd sit in college. Um, we had this thing called tutor class every Wednesday, which was like an hour of I didn't really, sometimes it would be where there was like sex education and sometimes it would be like, you can catch up on your homework now. Um, sometimes it would be like kind of debate or just, gen so basically it was a lesson that was an hour that you didn't really have to do anything. I would just read Melody Maker and pretend I was doing something else. Um, pretty much did the same in maths as well, um, which probably makes sense that I just found maths really difficult. So I would do anything other than maths. Um, which I think growing up, I think I've come to discover that I probably have dyscalculus, so I probably don't deal with numbers as well as I do with words. Um, and yeah, I think like the age of about 12, I think was when I heard Oasis, just as definitely maybe was coming out. Um, I was listening to Radio One a lot and listening to the evening session. And um, I mean, it. I, I just missed Nirvana and I just missed, um, kind of like a lot of like Joy Division um, and things like that. But I'd grown up with like, my dad was obsessed with Motown, um, but also like was really into the Prodigy at the time. Um, my mum my basically brought me up on Bowie and The Cure as if like that's religion. So I didn't really have religion in my house, but there was a really cool Cure poster in a picture frame in one of, one of my mum's rooms. And uh, I mean, my parents were reasonably young, like they were about 20 when they had me. Um, my mum's a hairdresser, so the radio was on all day at work. Um, my dad's a painter and decorator, so the radio was on for him all day at work. Um, so they they both had like car journeys, like like they had Volkswagen Beetles and um, camper vans, and we'd spend most of our time going driving to these shows to collect like random parts because the vehicles were so old, you had to literally go to these shows to buy like exhaust pipes and spark plugs and whatever else. So most of my weekends were like driving like six hours and listening to music in the car. So um, I, <laughs> it would have been hard for me not to have had a passion for music. Um, so yeah, so when I was like 12, like 13, 14, I definitely didn't understand like half the vocabulary being used in the music press. Um, probably by, by the age of like 14, I was buying 
record collector and select and um vox and correct like i was a like i was one of those weird people where i fit between the enemy and kerrang and like i loved deftones um but also i loved the long pigs um so my music taste sort of kind of never quite fit anywhere and like for instance i'd listen to john peel and i didn't really like it like i didn't find like i didn't find a connection to that kind of very lo-fi very um like a lot of people like music for its value of its obscurity but i was always really interested in music that connects cultures um and like i remember being obsessed with dead dead prez when i was about 16 and most deaf and dilated peoples and um because it was giving me a whole culture that i was not connected to that i could begin to understand um in reading journalists like stevie chick at the time writing um across different publications was just such an education in hip-hop um and i was <laughs> a white kid from a small suburban uh, seaside town in dorset um but listening to people talking about um kind of like drug cartels like the opening line to Des Deb Prez's um let's get free is this I think it's a, a speech or a poem I'm not 100% sure um about a wolf licking a blade in the in the it's what they do in the arctic to catch wolves and um they put the blade so that it's like got a little pool of water and the wolf licks it and licks it thinking it's drinking but actually it's killing itself and it's just like and then the last line of the song is and that's what the police did to us. And then, then like the song kicks in and it's so dramatic and powerful that um, as someone that was, um, I mean, I was listening to that and like being wowed by the, the kind of oratory of it. Um, I think it was like things like Wu-Tang Clan, I kind of liked, but they didn't connect in the same way because they were kind of cartoonish and like there was a lot of cinematic and kind of weird Shaolin and ninja things that I didn't. I didn't have the like film knowledge of, of the kind of Kung Fu culture to fully understand and appreciate it. Um, so I, I definitely had that, but then I was like, I remember a friend, like a friend that was a couple of years older than me played me ladies and gentlemen by spiritualized. And um, it was, I mean, to say that was one of those, like, if I had a life, if I had a biopic, that would be the needle drop moment when I first heard, um, I think I'm in love with that baseline and the ridiculousness of the lyrics kind of folding around each other. Um, so yeah, so it was it would be no surprise in that context of being 16, um, being obsessed with the music press, um, that my summer job was working in the local record shop. Um, and I pretty much, I was working for like £1.50 an hour. Like it was way below, like there was no minimum wage at the time. So it was really, really low wage. Um, like I remember working in the shop when The Man Who by Travis came out um, and I begged my boss to order more stock. She'd only ordered like two copies. And I'm like, this record's going to be massive. You don't understand. And um, she she took a, it was the first time she took a punt and ordered 10. Um, and then on the I think records came out on Fridays then. And I think they were sold out by the lunchtime. And I think by the at the end of the following Friday, I think we'd sold like 300 copies or something in this tiny shop. She was just completely baffled. And I was like, well, it's being played on like Chris Evans on Radio One and like they're on the cover of Enemy or something. And I was um, and I'd been to see them play and I was really excited. I mostly wanted to order them because when you worked in the shop, you could play stuff if it was popular. Um, so you could basically people would buy something if it was playing as well, which was a really fascinating thing. Not so great when you're working at Christmas and they had to play Robbie Williams basically nonstop for a month. But I just remember being 
that kid that was like someone would come in and they were like buying they were ordering in like the first green day album to plunk because it was the only one not on a major label and it was really hard to order um and they had to come in like for six weeks and every week they'd ask if it's come in yet and then i'd recommend them something to buy um and and, and they'd often buy something i'm not sure about that bring it back and then get something else and obviously they've gone home and taped it and um home taping was definitely killing music and i was probably i was probably facilitating that at the time um and then i went from that to working in the local venue um and i decided this was like 98 and i decided to start a fanzine by email um i didn't know it was really a fanzine i sort of knew what a fanzine was um but it was a newsletter and again like the concept of a newsletter didn't really exist then either um and I mean, I thought, well, if I did it, it's good for my CV to try and get a job. Um, like, like at the time, I was also like really obsessed with um, skate magazines, BMX magazines, and they had some really great music coverage. And I actually thought I could get the job reviewing albums for one of those magazines, because I didn't think I was smart enough. And I assumed everyone that's writing for the NME was like in their 40s without realizing they're mostly like 24 year olds studying philosophy. Um, and I was um yeah so i started this email fanzine um which i mean everyone's got a Substack now it doesn't seem like a odd thing to do but at the time i was basically like harvesting emails that was cc don's email addresses and say would you like to get my email um basically a gdpr nightmare um and um that people start asking to write for it and then it became drowning sound in like 2000 um but the the real energy that I had behind it was the very first edition of the email. I reviewed a band called Muse and it was their very first demo um, because I'd happened from randomly going through instant messenger on AOL, started chatting to a, a kid in Timmouth called Matt Bellamy. Um, and it was complete luck. Um, I mean, if his demo was awful, I would have said so as well. And, and um, uh, But no, it was great. And um, I think I just happened to search for like, people that were in like a hundred mile radius that liked Weezer or Tom Waits or something like that at the time and completely stumbled across um, news. Um, so that was a very long answer to your question, but I think that, I think it's important to, to put the enthusiasm in the, because I think without that, um, I guess it's like any rocket, isn't it? It's like the, the takeoff is quite dramatic and that's when all the fuel is burned. Um, and I think if you can't sustain that, um, you get a lot of people in the music industry that kind of drop out at like 25, 30, because they've, they've got in it for different reasons. And I've always felt that the reader that I was hoping to find was the frustrated me trying to find something great to listen to. And that didn't have to be this week's new release. It could have been something 10, 20, 30 years old. Um, and I think I took that into... Um, I guess the next thing that I did in like 2003 was our new music coverage was pretty good. We were quite good at spotting talent. Like we'd, um, I think Biffy Clyro were probably the first band we really championed. Um, and they, I mean, obviously that sounds stupid now because they're huge, but at the time they were like opening gigs at the Barfly to like 70 people. Um, and, but I'd seen out the drive-in and I was like, this has got something similar to that. And like, there's like this kind of British energy to the Scottish energy to what they were doing. And um, there, there was definitely a feeling of 
there was lots of acts we were finding that we really liked. And I was getting a bit frustrated that it was like, we can't write about their gig again. They've not still not got a single out. So I started putting singles out. Um, and I started Digital Singles Club was the idea. Um, but um, that didn't make sense to people. So I started releasing CD singles. Um, and I guess in terms of things that um, listeners might be familiar with, with um, Bat for Lashes was one of the first releases I did. And that was her debut single, Emmy the Great, um, who is a phenomenal songwriting talent. Um, and for the, the one that obviously changed lots of things um, was Kaiser Chiefs. Um, and I released Oh My God, and we sold out all the stock um, in like three days. Um, I think they sold like 700 copies in HMV Leeds. Um, and they went to like number 60 in the, in the singles charts, which I know sounds quite low, but for a record with like a thousand pound budget was quite good. <laughs> um, and yeah, their career really took off. Um, and at the time, I'd only had like a really, really small amount of investment in Duran and Sound. And I'd basically spent almost all of it putting singles out um, and not paying my rent or doing all the other things I probably should have been doing with the money. Um, and I happened, so we tried to sign the Kaisers for an album deal. Um, it didn't happen. Um, we were, uh, how do I put it, offering deals that were too fair. <laughs> Um, so there were profit split deals, which, um, which was how Factory Records worked, um, which was how um, Creation worked. Um, and to me, that was the like, I mean, Tony Wilson gave me a fair bit of advice, which I like, still can't get my head around now like that I was. Person. Yeah. What? He got, he, he, got me, he got me to speak at his conference when I was like, like in 2002 or so. What? Uh, um, and then I was on like the steering group of like organizing what topics they should be discussing at the conference. And like I told Rob Stringer to shut up in a meeting once because he was talking about stuff that was like 10 years out of date. And, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so Tony kind of took me under his wing a bit and would call me up. And I mean, I was I actually read yesterday, Conor McNicholas used to edit the NME, said that Tony used to call him as well. Um, and he would call him being like, I've just discovered this whole new genre of music. And like, do you know about it? And that, sometimes it would be something like chip tune, which was this like weird eight bit Japanese thing that um, I think like Malcolm McLaren had like signed some, someone making music with a Game Boy. Um, but then it would be like grime. Like the, one of the first grime gigs outside of London was it in the city in Manchester, the conference he ran. And um, so yeah, so, so Tony had kind of been a bit of a um, kind of whisperer to make sure I was doing the right kind of deals for artists um and also um i was trying to trying to get investment and i met dave balf that's like food records who'd signed blur and because of the kaisers people kept saying you should meet this guy like he's at least got some experience in the kind of terrain musically that you're in um but he'd also worked with like the like the klf and all sorts of um idol i think i think idol world was the main reason people thought i should meet him because i was a huge idol world fan so um and I feel like my story's going around in circles. Anyway, the, I think, and I, I might have over-dramatized this, but I'm pretty sure the day the Kaiser Chiefs told me they were signing to someone else, I went to see a, a Wainwright family show with because I was a big Rufus Wainwright fan. Um, and I saw Martha Wainwright play. Um, I was utterly blown away, so I tried to buy her EP afterwards, um, and she didn't have any left. <laughs> and so I asked for her management's contact details. Um, and I offered to put the EP out and the manager says, well, for a tiny bit more, you could put the album out. And I was like, what, there's an album? Um, so yeah, and I signed, so I signed Martha that way, which I know sounds really 
like simple but she'd been trying to get a record deal for eight years like the Rufus had become big but record companies hadn't really caught cottoned into onto how amazing she was um I got a feeling I can't swear but she had a track called BMFA um which uh I was so blown away by um and the the that record went on to sell 80,000 copies um she did a duet which set the fire to the third bar um with snow patrol which became like a huge global mega hit um and that had taken me from what 2003 starting a label to like 2006 um and the kind of like and i i basically spent every penny we made on her on her putting other records out um including bank or metric from canada the Stills, um, Brett Anderson from Suede's first solo album. Uh, what else was there? I mean, the the record that I always think that like there was a band called Youth Movies that I really loved that we put a record out that was quite proggy. Um, in fact, Andrew, the lead singer, was originally in Foles, and he decided to focus on Youth Movies instead. I don't know whether he chose as wise as he could have done. Um, and I mean, they were an extraordinary band. Um, and there wouldn't be foals without them in terms of their influence. Um, but there was a band from Sweden that I signed called Yanni Forever, um, who I described them as sounding like a cross between Death Cab for Cutie and Sigur Ross. It's like emo songwriting sensibilities, but with a grand kind of post-rock kind of cinematic sound. Um, they're probably a bit more in reality, like Album Leaf or Blonde Redhead or... Um, trying to think of other artists that are probably a bit more contemporary um i mean there's definitely a lot of that music which paved the way for arcade fire doing their kind of huge dramatic music um but yeah there was definitely something in working like that's probably the type of artist i would have been releasing if martha's record hadn't blown up um just records that really meant a lot to me that i could sell a few thousand copies and not not lose too much money releasing um and but i've always wanted to work like like the, the kind of artists we were promoting gigs by so dran and sound also had like a monthly club night in the bar flight and a monthly free night in nottingham arts club and we were putting on like guillemots and laura marling and jamie t and um the maccabees and all these acts which went on to have pretty big commercial success and definitely had cultural impact um, and I guess the, the kind of jewel in the crown of that moment of the band that I should have signed was Block Party. Um, I literally helped them post their demos out. They came and borrowed my Music Week directory of all the record companies' postal addresses. Um, and yeah, I probably could have managed them. I probably could have managed the Kaisers too. So um, yeah, so I think there was definitely a lot happening there. And like you said, like I was doing lots of things. Um, and around that time, like just like 2006, 2005, we started a podcast um, because there wasn't really an easy way of like compiling MP3s like you can on a playlist now. And I know it sounds, these things all sound really lame because they're so easy to do now, but they were really hard to do in that point in time. I mean, podcasting in 2005, why? Yeah. Why did you, like, it was going to be one of my questions anyway. Like, what was the thinking process? Uh, and how were you doing it? The, <laughs> well, like, it was very much held together with sellotape for the production side of it. Um, we had like a small mixing, so you weren't asking the practicalities of it, but it, I think there had been at the time, um, 
MP3s on RSS feeds. Um, and it's just going to sound, that's again, it's like a bit nerdy, but you, there was one thing in America and I can't remember what they were called. It was called Indie something. And literally you just get a different MP3 every day. Um, just come through as, and like, and then it grew to be like a podcast with a short introduction to each track. And that must've been like 2004. Um, and I'm pretty sure there was a few podcasts that had decided to get coverage around that time. Um, and I think iTunes had just added it as like a button on the iTunes store. Um, so, I mean, we had a few, cause like for instance, I really wanted to have like a cover mount CD on the website. I know this sounds really stupid, but um, I got into loads and loads of music because of the cassettes that would be on the cover of magazines and the CDs, um, samplers and things. And I really loved those compilations. Like I love compilation albums. Like the, um, I used to, I worked with Ed Harcourt for a few years. And we used to joke that most of our favorite acts we either discovered from compilations on magazines or film soundtracks. Um, and hardly any of it came from the radio or the music press really it just it was solidified by the the curation that went into those kinds of things and um because you couldn't hear things so as soon as i heard it that was when i worked out if i loved it or not um yeah I, like the uh just jumping back slightly it's like i remember like going out and buying a mogwai album after reading this glowing review in the enemy i just didn't get it i was like i mean i was 16 i probably wasn't um culturally attuned but um, I mean, obviously, I've seen Mogwai loads now and I love them, but at that point in time, I was like listening to like Deftones and Bob Dylan. I wasn't necessarily quite musically prepared for um, the sonic assault and the, the kind of sparseness of Mogwai. But yeah, I guess the podcast made sense because it allowed us to have a radio show without anyone having to give us a radio show. Um, exactly my thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like we had the cribs come in and do like a takeover which was really fun and um but it was really good because we got to interview them and play tracks and we weren't like oh we've got like 30 seconds to speak between songs it was like as you can tell i ramble a bit um so we got to really talk about music and culture and the things that excited them and why so because they picked some like quite obscure artists and they got to they got to introduce me to them as well as the listener so um which I really love that kind of format. And actually at the moment, that's the thing that I'm kind of itching to do again. Um, having that space and time with an artist, but also have their kind of um, recommendations come through. And um, I did a radio show for a bit on Soho Radio. Um, well, I say for a bit, it was monthly for five years. Um, but one of our formats, because um, it was really difficult to book guests and it was kind of a hobby thing. I didn't have much time to dedicate to it. Um, we, we did this format, um, my co-host was Danielle Perry, who's on Absolute, and um, she's a great, she's a proper professional radio person, and I'm not, um, but I do all right. Um, and we had this format where we would make um, a kind of compilation of an artist's work, so like St. Vincent, um, so it would be a few tracks from each album, um, like she guested on a Chemical Brothers track, um, she sung backing vocals on a Suffian Stevens track, um a couple of things that she said that she adores and that was like the first hour then the second hour we'd make them a mix of music we think they would like um so like the david lynch one was really fun because i got to like go through all the david lynch soundtracks and try and get it down to an hour um and go through some old interviews with him like he, he recommended this band called au revoir simone that i really love and there's and then the second hour it was like picking things like sky Ferreira, where she'd sampled like a line from twin peaks and 
like I'd forgotten that Moby's literally like sampled the the like sound effects from Twin Peaks and things and um so yeah so like those kind of things they like, create this like really rich tapestry I mean obviously that would have been even better to have had an hour-long interview with David Lynch in the middle of it but uh I just nicked some bits from his commentary tracks of the album commentary of one of the records so I could have, add some bits in there um I feel like I'm now rambling and not necessarily going back to what your question was. So you asked why podcasts then? Yes. Um, and I think all I was very much of that spirit of why not? <laughs> it didn't cost us very much to do. And the technology was there. And I mean, the technology took the head. It was, it was harder to set up the RSS feed to make it so that people could subscribe. And probably far harder to explain what it was to people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the word blog didn't exist in the year 2000 when we started. A social network didn't exist as a concept. Like I was trying to explain to the designer some of what I wanted to do with the site at the time. And it was, um, I really wanted to allow people to share their catalogs of music they own, like to rate like all this year's releases and then like work out what the best, so like Rotten Tomatoes, basically. I wanted to allow everyone to review a record so that you'd then get kind of a variety of opinions on the same record, which basically was just what we were doing on the message board threads, but a bit more. But it was really hard. Like I was explaining this to a designer over Instant Messenger who was building the site for free in his summer holiday. So um, yeah, trying to envisage something without the resources of half a million pounds of investment or what we would have probably needed to have really done it properly. So of course you did answer my next question a bit already, but like with Drowning Sound, how has it changed and what is it now? So it's changed a lot <laughs> as of, so there was the newsletter that I did, then it was Drowning Sound, then it was a website and a record label. And I kind of focused on the record label and someone else focused on the site. Then we had a website and podcasts and a record label. Then we tried to do a bit of YouTube, but that was in 2008, 2009, that was really expensive to make video content. Um, like a minute of video was gonna cost us like a thousand pounds just because of the costs of either hiring cameras or lighting or all the other stuff. It was just way too prohibitive. But around that time we, the people that started advertising got bought by Sky, so B Sky B, um, and so we we were given an advance, um, and as we are launched the Quietus um, and a cycle Thrash hits, um, then cycle the Lipster, which didn't stay around as long as the others, but at the same time, advertising revenue was falling off a cliff, and by about 2010, it just didn't become really sensible to be running ad-supported music journalism. Um, I mean, it probably didn't make sense before that, but it made even less sense as like per thousand page views, it dropped to like two pounds. And like now it's something like 30p per thousand page views. I mean, obviously, you know what an artist gets paid for a million views on YouTube. YouTube videos, the rate per thousand or the rate per, per million views is far, far more than um, on text based editorial, which is why most websites now are unreadable if they've got adverts in them because every other paragraph is a advert because they're trying to make money, um, which doesn't make for a great consumer experience. And it's definitely not what most people got in it for. And I think that by about 2015, I'd gone more into management. Um, I was managing Ed Harcourt and an artist called the Anchoress, which some of your students might be aware of because um, I believe she's one of your lecturers. The economics would were really difficult so we had to lay a few people we laid a lot of people off in 2009 and then we laid everyone else off in about 2014 2015 
we sort of hobbled along for a bit longer, but it just didn't make sense to carry on publishing. Um, the forums have stayed as busy. And in fact, they had 3 million page views on the forums last month. Um, and February is a short month, so that's quite a lot. And the forums have always been this like strange, like end of the internet. Um, they're very similar to Reddit, but they're very small in comparison. I guess it's it's the difference between a small pub and the O2. Like the, the, there's a different culture to our forums, which is incredibly inclusive a lot of the time. It didn't always used to be and definitely had a lot of issues in the past. Um, there was a newsletter, which I paused a bit because my job last year was really full on. Um, I was working for the composer, Max Richter. <laughs> he released three albums last year and did these some quite big projects I got to work on. Um, but it meant come Sunday when I was going to start writing my newsletter, I just didn't have any band brain width left. And yeah, I've kind of got some ambitions of what to do with it now. It's, um, for a while, I was thinking like Web3 might make sense and NFTs and things, but I really don't. I think that technology is about two to five years away from being at least eco-friendly, let alone being um, kind of philosophically friendly, given that um, crypto is so tied in with I mean, at the moment, like Russian money being moved around and things. So I'm, I'm very skeptical, but I can see that practically some of the technology is quite clever. Um, and there's a lot of people with a lot of money wanting to invest in culture and music and art. Um, so I'd be foolish not to be looking at it, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not going too far down that rabbit hole. And I think the other thing I've kind of been thinking about is elevating what a podcast can be a bit like I love I love interviewing people but I hate transcription <laughs> um and I actually didn't interview loads of people that I really love because I was like I don't have the brain to transcribe this and often if you're interviewing someone on like the Thursday and the record was out on the Friday you'd need to turn it around really quickly for people to be interested in reading because every other publication's interview would be up and if you put it up three weeks later it wouldn't get as much traffic at all um so yeah, so I've, I've, I feel like there's not like documentary content that's being made around music. And I feel that there's also like quite grand ideas I've got in terms of sound and podcasts. Like I, I really like the idea of sound design and almost like those kind of things like sleep stories. If you did something like that and you do it with like an ambient soundtrack, but actually it's a story of like the history of music in Munich or something, I don't know something that's engaging enough to listen to, but you don't mind falling asleep to, or um, a kind of like a history of Depeche Mode and actually get the producer and the stems and like really kind of take the songs apart and talk through the catalog um, rather than there's like, there's one podcast I think I subscribe to called Deconstructed or something. I don't know if you've heard that one. And it's like, it's like someone reading an audio book of their music journalism about like Kendrick Lamar. And it's like, three episodes of like an hour long per track and you're just like this is this should be really interesting but <laughs> like could this could have been interesting if the things that you're reading the quotes of were actually someone speaking and um so I think work, elements yeah I think working at the BBC and seeing how radios made at that level was was really interesting but obviously a lot of that is just live linear radio and um filling presenters doing like 15 hours a week um so yeah so to explain why I said that, it's like, so I worked for Six Music for four years, running the social media channels. It was um, going to be my next question. Okay, I'll let you ask the questions. I'm just like, 
rambling, which I know no, is the great. point of a podcast. It all, it all makes sense. The timeline yeah. is perfect. It all makes sense. I was actually going to ask about it. I was going to, yeah, just want to know what you, what were you doing and what were the kind of like main, you know, learning outcomes or, you know, just, just must have been an interesting experience just coming from everything that you've discussed. So as you might have been able to detect from a lot of what I just said, I didn't do many jobs that weren't working for myself up until that point. Um, I'd been pretty head down with Drown and Sound or management or the label. Um, I mean, there was one thing I didn't touch on at one point. I had like a publishing imprint where I was paid a consultancy fee to recommend artists. Um, I tried to sign Hardfi, which was quite a weird one. I didn't like them, but I knew they were going to be big. <laughs> yeah, so there was definitely a, a bit of a shift in um, management became difficult. Like I was managing Ed Harcourt. Um, he'd signed to, I got him signed to Polydor. He'd done a big global deal with Burberry. Um, but as a manager, <laughs> there isn't that much money. Um, so I started trying to find other artists to manage and I was finding it really difficult. Um, I started doing some consultancy work um, and I like launched something called Independent Music Monday for PS. Um, so I spoke to a friend of mine um, that works at the BBC and I was like, what kind of freelance jobs are there that I could do like part-time or because um, I'd I'd done a guest show for Six Music years ago and I'd been a regular guest on Round Table um, and pretty much every artist I released has either been played on there or done a session or like Martha Wainwright hosted like a Christmas special for them once so like I know a lot of people there and I kind of was listening to it all day at home um, whilst doing things um, so yeah so I so my role, so I, came, I went in for three weeks and apparently this is what happens at the BBC. You go in for three years, uh, three weeks and you leave after three or four years or you go in formally and some people are there. Like one of my colleagues had been there for like 22 years or something. It was like, he'd started out as an AP on a, an assistant producer on a small Brighton radio show and he's now like head of social. And um, so yeah, so people do stay at the BBC a long time and do a whole range of things. Um, but I pretty much only did social media and I came in to work on Six Music's T-shirt day, um, which is their big annual wearer. Uh, send a request from your chest was how I phrased it on social of what they play, what you're wearing um, as requests. So you send in selfies. And I, my job was to try and get some of the really big artists to tell their fans to remember to wear their T-shirts um, because it's a really nice way of kind of the more people take part, the more the station gets talked about. And but I also had to work on Radio 2, which was quite a kind of cultural adjustment for me, which was really interesting of like, um, I mean, one of the most fun days I did. So most for pretty much most of the time I was just doing six music, but I drop in and work on other events for other networks sometimes. And I worked on Radio 2 in Hyde Park um, and I was the person posting all of the Instagram and tweets and a few links out on Facebook during the event. Um, and when Jason Donovan came on with Kylie Minogue, I did like the most like all caps enthused like tweet. Um, and the head of the station came around the next day and I was like, uh, she's like, who posted that tweet about Kylie and Jason? And I was thinking like Kylie's complained or something. Um, it turned out she was like, I just wanted to shake you by the hand because it was brilliant and it perfectly summed up what was going through everyone's mind. And so That's it was crazy. like, and it was just all caps, Kylie and Jason. For as many as you could fit in a tweet and a gif um but she was so thrilled and i was like phew i was like i thought maybe i'd got the tone completely wrong <laughs> maybe i'm upset kylie yeah <laughs> yep. <laughs> um but yeah so a lot of the job was the bbc's got like 
I, I, this is no big secret, but the BBC's got um, uh, the government constantly reviewing its contracts. Um, and the, the audience under about 25 is obviously people that stream a lot, people that um, spend their time with Netflix, people that can listen to internet radio stations that wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. Um, the, the kind of attention economy means that people are spending time on TikTok and or watching Netflix. And all of those things are things that didn't exist when Six Music started and obviously wasn't something for the kind of my generation. Um, we listened to the radio a few hours a week and the BBC was like, that's great. <laughs> We've got these kids over here that like pop music, they're listening to the radio a few hours a week and then they're watching documentaries and like, so that we were still consuming the BBC and now they don't see with podcasts and all sorts of things and um, the, to expand what the BBC is and how it fits into the world of people that are younger, um, but also not just, not just be in that space, be the best in class in that space in some circumstances. And um, so a lot of what I was doing with Six Music is obviously a slightly older audience, but um, there would definitely be things where we would reflect slightly more current artists in a kind of savvier way. So like, um, I mean, it helps that my music taste has never like aged out. And um, so there'll be lots of things where I'd be doing like loads of Phoebe Bridges content and, um, lots of um christine and the queens and when was um, this so this was 2018 until okay so first last year bridges, yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah so i was there for four years um the things like when lizzo played glastonbury like the uh i turned the account into a lizzo stan account and i actually people would start complaining i was like if you've come here for anything other than Lizzo you've come to the wrong place <laughs> um and it was I just I was kind of given quite a bit of free reign and to have a real personality with the account sometimes um lots of community management so yeah barking conversations um lots of um like Louis Three would come in and I'd have to come up with we've got 15 minutes for Louis Three. what should we do um that wasn't meant to rhyme um and so we got him to talk about um his favorite hip hop tracks. Um, and in fact, we ended up with this lovely story with him talking about how when he went to school with Adam and Joe, he, he was always the really uncool one that they would recommend music to. And, um, and he was like, my favorite Bowie album is like the best of Bowie and he felt really embarrassed. <laughs> um, and, uh, but he's, he was really into hip hop. So we got some really great bits out of, out of Louie and um, we'd have like, uh, Got what her name is in my head. I should talk about someone else. Um, yeah, there was just con like so. Some of it would just be pointing a smartphone at someone and getting them to do something really interesting and creating video content, which would then promote the special they were doing on the station. Um, like Diane Morgan, um, Philomena Kunk did a Christmas special, and she's not the biggest name. I mean, she's a lot bigger now, but um, like she was the kind of interesting kind of Christmas host where you'd be able to make something but then give it to the BBC comedy team to post rather than necessarily for the Six Music account. And um, we had uh, things like, I mean, the Doctor Who stuff was always great because the Doctor Who accounts are massive. So, um, but a lot of it was obviously musicians coming in. So um, one of the last things I did before I left was there was a Beastie Boys takeover. Um, and we didn't have any time with them, but we could listen to the show in advance and get a sense of what they were playing. and. Um, so I ended up making like it because it was on 
um, brunch time on New Year's Day, I made like a Beastie Boys brunch pun menu. Um, that was just all puns related to Beastie Boys songs. Love and it. actually they, they mentioned loads of food. Um, so making something like that was quite a like, in fact, I ended up going online and finding this article with like um, the, tw it was like 20 dishes to eat around New York referenced by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> so like, and that's the kind of thing that the Beastie Boys fan base shared, added their own puns to. So, um, which I know sounds not like a job, but that was my job. <laughs> it is a job. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a pretty cool one as well. Okay. So you were working with quite a lot of uh, female artists as well. Like you were just... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you um, are. But I, I like. I tried to keep the accounts so that they would reflect a a world you want to see. So it wasn't always. I mean, if you'd listen to the station at some points, um, the guests skewed very male, very white, and very old, <laughs> um, and the presenters at one point did a lot more too. Um, that didn't mean that didn't mean that there weren't people like that on the account it just meant that there'd often be a balance so if I'm doing something about Brian Eno utter utter legend then I would think about the fact that should the next post be Peter Gabriel or should the next post be um Khalees like you you could make those editorial decisions and the account could be slightly more inclusive um and obviously um being inclusive is really important so making sure the language that you use was kind of as like for instance before I started there the word band was the only word people used and I know that sounds really really small thing but if you don't talk about acts and artists you are boxing the whole station into one type of music if you're asking um who's the best band you've seen live no one is going to reply and the station is going to think well our audience are really into idols and Fontaine's DC because you framed the question in a way that you can't respond with um, most death and you can't respond with um, uh, I'm not going to say Lizzo again but I'm going to say Lizzo again <laughs> um, so yeah so I think a lot of those I mean obviously my the, the records I released I think um, in 2004-2005 like I mean not that they're not still asked now but being asked are you, what's it like being a woman in music was, was still asked to musicians almost every interview because people thought they'd get a great soundbite. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I grew up with La Tigra. Like I was obsessed with the slits. Like I loved Bikini Kill. So the, the idea that, um, I mean, you read like, in fact, going full circle, Everett's True's book about Nirvana is actually, it's called Live Through This. And it's actually mostly about all the bands Kurt loved and that Everett loves. And there's lots in there of just like, a, a history of kind of women in punk rock um which was phenomenal to kind of as a 16 year old have that not not just touch points but a vocabulary of artists which when i don't know xfm does its 100 greatest songs of all time and the only woman in there is the people player in new order um you've kind of got asked questions about whether that whether anyone looked at that list from an editorial standpoint, I don't know if it was publicly voted, I'm not picking fights with XFM, but if the BBC had done a list of 30 essential albums from New York and it was all white men, then that wouldn't have been the right way of 
approaching that because that would not tell the true history. I mean, you wouldn't have Blondie in there for a start, so that list would be void. Um, but it wouldn't be a true reflection of a city that's got that cultural diversity. Um, and yeah, so I think I think it's really difficult to talk about these topics without sounding like you're like disproportionately platforming things. But I think considering what the output is, <laughs> um, and none of it was an untrue reflection of the radio station, because what you're trying to do is reflect the station and the myriad of things that it does um, through a really small window. And some of that is to grow the audience and some of that is to connect with the existing audience. Um, so the story that you're telling has to be multifaceted and have different fragments in it. Um, I think that makes sense. I feel like I'm making less sense the more I speak. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> you are making sense. It all makes sense. I'm trying to think of all the things that you touched on and what else I want to ask you, because there's a lot. <laughs> I do have more questions. I would like to ask you to try and think if you were that person so into music magazines, like the, the very young um, Sean today, what kind of career or aspirations you think you'd have? Because of course the landscape has changed so much, but there is still a lot to do in, in content and music and digital, but where would you direct yourself to? Does so, it make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That's a question I ask myself a lot. It's a question I probably asked other people. Um, so I don't blame you. And I also know how annoying a question it is to ask people. Yeah, I probably ask myself that question. What would 16 year old me do? And what would David Bowie do? They're probably the only two questions I have in my head most of the time. So I think the kind of 16, 20 year old me now would probably, I mean, I probably wouldn't be a TikToker or a YouTuber. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm suggesting that I would still be as weirdly awkward as I was then and um, not loving being in front of the camera, much preferring like, I would wander around as a really small kid just taking pictures all the time. So the idea of being the person taking a selfie is not, um that's that's not really me and also i don't think from a consumer perspective making the the personality more important than the things that you're recommending works either um and i actually think it's it's really interesting in the modern world to see how few people use their platform to platform others rather than themselves <laughs> um it's why moments like black lives matter feel so stark because they're actually one of the few moments people stop speaking about themselves um and i'm not speaking about everyone i'm speaking about people that have got three million followers five million followers 20 million followers um in fact i've actually found it quite upsetting in the last few weeks to go through social media accounts of some of the biggest artists in the world um and not see them saying anything about the humanitarian crisis in ukraine um because a lot of them are ambassadors for things like, I mean, the kind of artists that would be headlining a Live Aid right now or a Live Aid right now, those artists are silent. Um, and it's probably so they don't, it's probably so they can play Russia in 10 years time and they won't get their visa revoked. Um, it's probably because they don't know what to say. And they're probably concerned that if they stand up for Ukraine, are they like, is, is, is the Russian government as good as they think it is? Like, I think as someone that understands these platforms now in the way that I do, I think um, I would probably be, um, and this is also like, I am thinking what would 16 year old me do right now? Because 
40 year old me right now needs to work out what I'm doing. Um, and having that sense of, um, I just, I love recommending things to people. That's like, it's, and I love supporting and protecting artists because I think that they're two slightly different things, but when you're a manager or when you're at the record company, you're not like, I had to try and get the word exploit removed from our contracts. And because it's used in almost every kind of corporate contract that you do when you sign an artist, the word exploit feels so stark. Um, and it's there because it's, you're exploiting the rights of the music. Um, but it still feels to me like you're taking something as indefinable and magical as music and turning and turning into a commodity, which is actually like running a record company. That's exactly what I was doing, but it shouldn't feel like mining diamonds. Um, and it shouldn't feel like, um, I mean, obviously since Amy Winehouse is passing, there was a lot of reflection in the industry and um, I'm not saying it's, directly linked but universal have got some of the best mental health support for their staff um in kind of most industries like i don't think there's many places on par with what um universal have offered to their staff but <laughs> does universal offer that to freelance people to the entire villages of people working with the artists that that feed into them do they do that for the artists themselves it's like i'm not sure they do um and the, I'm sort of drifting away from the question occasionally because um, I'm, I'm not sure if I know the answer to the question. So you can, you can follow the path of deflection. Um, but I think, there's, I think there's a lot that's, um, that's in what I want to do right now, which is about providing that support to musicians because we're in another transitionary period. Um, 2008 was quite a big transitionary period with, YouTube kind of rocketing, Spotify taking off, um, the money between CDs and phys other physical products. Vinyl is still really small and it's still considered to be this kind of savior of the music industry, but the margin on a vinyl is so, so slight really that unless you sell all of them, you're only making a few thousand pounds. And if you're paying out for marketing to sell those copies, then you might not even make that few thousand pounds. Um, I think there's a lot of um, like songwriters don't get as paid as well from streaming as um, musicians that or the person you can you can make more money covering someone's song than the person's song that you're covering. Um, a lot of these things are quite abstract and quite broken. But um, and like I said, like I used to do all my deals as profit splits because I think it's fairer for the artist to earn from their own work. Um, so record labels that take 82% of the money um, and then don't spend anything on marketing um, and charge the artist full price to buy their own stock to sell to their fans. Like all of that to me feels really anti-artist. It doesn't feel like you're in a collective together working for the music and serving the music. And I think, um, so I think I'm always going to be in this duality between the curatorial side of like I said, like I loved hosting radio show. I loved recommending records to people in a record shop when I worked there. Like um, I really like when I tell one of my friends that's got an amazing music taste, this like one record or this one artist they've never heard. And then their entire taste kind of drifts in a different direction to something that they never would have listened to before. And because so people do that for me. Kind of like an influencer. 
Yeah, well, I actually had this back conversation with a friend of mine the other day. Um, she's she was from New York. She's called she was called Ultra Girl, um, and she actually used to write for my newsletter. Um, and the first time I went to New York, she was on the cover of Village Voice. Um, and in a weird way, she was like a DJ in New York clubs at a time when like the Strokes were taking off. And um, she was who told me about Interpol, like when their first EP came out. She was she was writing for Spin and. Um, but she was like, it's so funny. We were like, like she got abuse for adding adverts to her blog, like because people called her a sellout and said that you shouldn't be like putting advertising. And like, because that was the world we were in in like 2002. Um, and like now, like, I mean, she's, she's um, I'm pretty sure she put My Chemical Romance's first single out or was the A&R on their first record or something. Like the influence that you can have on society is not the same as, look at me and the things look at my wonderful life which I don't find I can't think of many things that influencers have done that have changed culture apart from influencing more people to try and become influencers and maybe that strange like silvery um cheekbone makeup that people wear um as a trend um I mean I, I find I find TikTok fascinating and but the people I follow on TikTok are um there's this amazing um economist who's I would, I would guess about 30. She worked on the, the Bernie Sanders campaign and every week she will explain a really complex economics theory <laughs> in a really funny way. And then we'll post about the Grateful Dead or something. <laughs> um, the, uh, or I follow, um, there's this amazing account, Abby, I forgot what her surname is, that debunks conspiracy theories. And she will see something going around on Twitter at the moment and she will debunk them. And it's like, no one's really doing that in music. Like who is, like, for instance, Kanye's just made an awful video um, with basically the homicide of um, Pete. I don't know enough about the celebrity culture to know his surname. Um, Kanye, uh, Kim Kardashian's new partner. And he's made basically a, um, like, you would call it ideation or something, this kind of threatening music video. And it's like, where's the, the cultural criticism of that's not right? <laughs> Um, I mean, you might get it on somewhere like Jezebel, um, which is a brilliant feminist blog, but I don't think you're going to get it on Rolling Stone. I mean, the fact Marilyn Manson is still working with Kanye and yet people are excited by his stem player. It's like you've, you've got to hold these like it's not about holding power to account, but I think it is about holding power to account. Um, I've always been a critic rather than a journalist, and that's it's the difference between someone that reports the news and someone that criticizes culture. I think quite big differences. And I was a columnist for the Sunday times for four years, which is another thing. And amongst all this stuff we didn't touch on. Um, and that was great because I had my own space and I could basically write what I wanted within, within legal media law. Um, but like, for instance, I did, I did a column on choice paralysis, which is basically when you open up, um, for instance, you've opened Spotify um, and you've got a search box. Well, what do you search for? You've got the entire history of music. You've got every conversation you've ever had about music. You've got all these different things. And like, to me, that's fascinating. So algorithms are now trying to fill the gap. But actually, an, an algorithm is only as good as the data that goes into it. Um, and you don't get anomalies. You don't get discovering Bikini Kill because Kurt Cobain loves them. Um, you get another band that sounds like you'll get the vines or you'll get 
um, royal blood, you won't get Bikini Kill because it's just that too many. And what you won't get from Bikini Kill is discovering Kill Rockstars, the record label, and then getting into like Miranda July's spoken word records and Elliot Smith's early albums. And like, so th those kind of pathways and journeys are far better handled by humans. Um, and I know that's why Apple One exists to have a radio station attached to a streaming service. Um, I know that's why Six Music is still, like I think it's had 2.3 million listeners in the UK in, in the last quarter or however they, they, they measure it. Um, so those things are still important. I don't think I answered your question, but I at least gave an answer. No, I think you have. You have. It was long and, and, and it all makes Meander. sense. It makes sense. And actually, you did touch on the question that I was going to ask you now, which is, how do you find new music now? New, not necessarily like current, you know, yeah. the same kind of like approach that you were uh, discussing earlier, how you were like writing about music when you started the newsletter. So it didn't have to be like the new release. It had to be something that you somehow got into and really wanted to share with the world. How do you get exposed to new music now? It's such a difficult question because even the definition of what's new I think has been broken for a very long time. Like to, in, until about 2005, a new artist was someone that maybe had a couple of albums out, couldn't quite headline say Brixton Academy or like a thousand capacity venue in London. Um, hasn't been on like the cover of the enemy, but I'd already say that. Like, but someone that is like some notoriety around and they could still be the radar one, one band a week in the enemy where there was like a new music feature. Um, then MySpace came around and suddenly music magazines had, like I counted once in the enemy, 120 new artists um, that, I, that I think had never been covered in the magazine before um, and might have never been covered in the magazine again. Um, we've reached a point where there's 60,000 tracks a day being released on streaming. Um, but those, and those stats have grown. It was like 18,000, like four years ago. Um, I have no idea what most of this music is. I'm assuming a lot of it is um, the kind of algorithmically made um, music. And a lot of it is someone's first demo that they're putting up through uh, DistroKid or um, CD Baby or one of those services. And a lot of it will be people just resubmitting their music in the hope that it gets picked up by the algorithm. Um, and a million remixes in acoustic versions. And like, there's, there's a lot of artists releasing, releasing a lot of music. And that's before you get into the karaoke tracks and the sound alikes and all of the um, like music that's being, podcasts that being uploaded as music in the hope that they kind of find an audience in search. And um, so the, the signal to noise is worse than it ever was. Um, and I think accepting that problem <laughs> um, is really difficult for a lot of artists because I mean, at one point in my inbox, I was getting 700 hours of music a day. Um, that was albums, like we, we counted it once just because we were curious. Um, so in terms of how I discover things, um, there are a few different, so obviously friends, musicians that I follow, um, record labels that I trust that have signed new artists, like I'll pretty much listen to anything for AD sign, Wichita work with, um the they are kind of like filters for me in a way that's um that's been incredibly reliable for two decades so i will stick to them um and 
obviously certain radio presenters that I like, I listen to regularly, um, like people I follow on social media, like, but it would be things like um, when Olivia Rodrigo's album came out last year, I hadn't heard of her until the week it came out, like, and she, obviously she was massive before that. But the week it came out, Phoebe Bridges posted about it. Matty from the 1975 posted about it. Like four or five American journalists that I follow had just interviewed her. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this album. And lo and behold, I got obsessed with it like everyone else did last summer. Um, and, but I like, for instance, I worked on, <laughs> on um, uh, a festival for Radio 1 one year um, doing social media stuff. And like Post Malone was playing and somehow I'd been out of whatever bubble he'd broken through on and just was I was like who's this person like halfway up the main stage like I've never heard of um and I'm like oh they've got like five million streams of their new track um so yeah I'm not always as in touch with the kind of zeitgeist as much as but then at the same time like I love loads of ambient music so um, there's like a great ambient thread on Drowning Sound so I can often spend an hour just dropping recommendations from that into a playlist and listening through them. Um, recently discovered some really great things through that. Um, there's, I mean, I really love, um, I really love sometimes just going through the like, people that like this also liked, like on Spotify, that's really easy to do, um, which I know sounds a bit lame, but, um, the sometimes there'd just be a name it's like oh i noticed their name on a festival lineup and i've never listened to them and um there's that's a good one the festival lineup yeah festival lineups can be quite good because again they're like like the amount of times like i've especially going to like really small like i've been to like hard-working heroes in dublin um which is all like 200 capacity is probably the biggest venue so it's all really small venues um and before I went, I just went through like a playlist of, cause I'd heard of a fair few of the acts, but there was obviously like 70 names I'd never heard of. In fact, last time I went to that festival, I discovered an artist called Bad Bones who never ended up releasing anything, but she was like um, Fever Ray meets like um, Moderat or something. And it was like really, really, really good electronic music. Um, but her visuals were stunning, like monochrome, every pulse of every, like they were all synced with what she was playing. and. Um, it was just really dramatic and like she was there in like a chainmail hoodie looking like she was like a little prince um as in prince prince not the little prince which is like a kid's book isn't it um and yeah so there's definitely there's definitely line like and it and it's it can be weird like sometimes it would just be someone calls me up going i've just heard this thing that i think you'll really like like the kaiser chiefs i discovered because i liked their old band parva a bit i wasn't a huge fan their manager remembered I was a bit of a fan and sent me the tracks. One of my housemates went, um, I think went to see them or had listened to the demo in my demo pile because we were housemates at the time. And he was like, you'll love this. Um, I mean, I discovered the shins because one of my friends literally like handed me the CD. It wasn't like the scene from Garden State, but it wasn't far off. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I've definitely had, um, but that's the thing, it's like, I. I've been thinking a lot about how to do that for other people um, because again, like the signal to noise is really difficult. So the newsletter I started, which I'm determined to carry on doing, um, is just picking one album from the last 20 years. Um, 
and just something that stood the test of time for me that I feel that more people should take a bit of time to listen to. So like the last, I think I did a few of them already. Um, I recommended Auto Lux's, um, I want to say Pussy's Dead, I think that's what it's called. Um, that album is phenomenal. And like Carla the drummer is played on Bright Eyes Records and all sorts of things. Like she's amazing. Um, and people would have heard her playing on drumming on other people's records. Um, and that idea of just going, right, I'm just going to pick this record up and just plunk it in your world and maybe you'll like it. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> I think it's, it's really good to remember that there are still so many different things that you can tap into, so many different resources that you have. I mean, of course, you, didn't, you did not mention, but independent radios. It's, no. it's kind of like the idea of a playlist, a curated hour of music. I always discover music through like mm. the show of the friend of a friend that's been shared and i'm just you know just need to kind of like find that time just yeah. go beyond that spotify mm. algorithm and just like let spotify do it for but yourself. it's even fine it's even finding that person though like and it, like going back to what i was saying about drown and sound not being a social network when i wanted it to be i wanted to find someone else that loved the elliot smith album as much as i did and then go what else have they got like that was the best thing about napster you'd be downloading a track and waiting an hour and like you could go through someone that's got a rare Weezer track. You like what else is in their life? Yeah. <laughs> not on Napster. I'm not going to drop yeah. names. You can still do that peer-to-peer -peer yeah. discovery, but I know what you mean completely. And one other thing that I absolutely love that um, you just reminded me of is What's in My Bag by Amoeba. Yeah. You know the videos, yeah. which is the same kind of thing about reading a long interview with an artist. Okay, what are you into now? Yeah. What are your favorite records? Whatever. It's so, I, I found out about, I think, I think the Paul Weller one, he recommended mm. Alala's or something like that. And yeah. I remember like, it's just, I love those connections. I love to connect with a person behind the artist and being like, oh yes, we listen to the same stuff. That's amazing. I think that, that was something when I was working at Six Music, I was really trying to do a lot of. Um, we got, I created this feature called My Life in Six Riffs. Um, and Tim Vincent did one. Um, probably one of the funnest 20 minutes I've ever had at, at any job ever. She like started playing Tool and some Pantera, some Hendrix. Love that. Um, so um, I'm trying to think, we did one with Anna Calvi, which was really cool as well. I mean, I was quite selective with who I got to do them. Like Villagers did one and it was really fun. And like his, uh, what's, I, I, the last question was always, what's an underrated riff? And he played the theme tune to Friends. <laughs> Love it. I mean, to me, it's all about that connection with yeah. a person and their music taste. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's what really is lacking like Spotify and the algorithm is not, is not getting, as you were saying, that connection. That's why I keep coming back to is like, should I be doing something that allows me and artists to have that kind of impact I on people? Like, I've got this quite complicated idea of I'm calling like fragmented radio. So you can listen to a five minute podcast you can listen to a two-hour interview you could listen to like 10 minutes of the interview cut up with an hour of music uh, in a playlist and like i'm trying to work out how that works because um like one of my ideas is to do like a road trip hour with an artist um and literally sit in a car with a mic and just do the interview um, and get them to take over the controls um and i feel like there's like there's so there's like I've got this other idea of like um, 21 greatest records of the 21st century. 
um, and doing my own list and interviewing each of those artists about their 21 records. Um, and then from that, those lists, interviewing some of those artists and it just being this ongoing, we did this great feature on Drown and Sound, I'm gonna say great and I'm bigging myself up, but it wasn't my idea at all. I think it was a guy called Kev Karras's idea who now makes music as, I've forgotten what his band's called, that's really bad. Um, anyway, he came up with this idea and um, it was the top eight on MySpace, uh, which was obviously a big thing at the time. And the feature was just going on an eight, uh, eight steps. So it'd be eight artists in the piece. You'd start off with an artist you currently really liked. And you'd then, from wherever that top eight of the next artist was, you'd listen to all of them and pick a favorite. And then you'd go through to there. And then it was just this kind of like really simple eight step journey but obviously you'd listen to a load of other things that maybe what you didn't like as much or um and occasionally you get an artist that didn't have any music in their top eight um but i digress um but those kind of features are, are really simple to do and they're like a journey that the reader goes on that the writer's already been on um i like just going back to some of the stuff i said at start like i grew up reading magazines that like surf magazines which weren't really about being in the water and surfing they were all about the culture and I feel like there's so much of the culture around music that's not discussed. Like you're surrounded by posters of, I'm assuming some of them are music related and like and some of the photographers behind some of those, the poster designers, like there's entire villages involved in music and no one really ever hears from those people. And like often until they die and it's like you get these legendary photographers whose stories only told as like a kind of full stop on their life. And I feel like, um, like I love going to cities where I don't really know anyone, um, but the two or three people that I do know in music introduced me to this entire scene. Like I've been to Reykjavik and done that. I've been to Miami recently and done that. Um, I've been to Montreal and done that. And like Montreal's fascinating. You cross the street and everyone's speaking English and you're on the other side of the road and everyone's speaking French. And it's like, and you go into a bookshop and they've got like a Leonard Cohen section. And like that to me is about experiencing a place. And I guess like, I love, um, the kind of Hunter S. Thompson kind of school of journalism where sometimes the writer is the story, um, but often it's the place and the, like what people mistake in gonzo journalism is actually, it's just all the things he saw. He just was documenting and participating um, rather than being um, a silent bystander. So I think that there's, yeah, I think there's like a lot of different types of journalism that still haven't really been tapped into. and. Um, like one of my favorite pieces I've ever read, sorry, I'm rambling and I realized we've probably gone over time. Um, there was this amazing piece in a journal called the Oxford American with an, um, a professor, an English teacher talking about how he was teaching Shakespeare with Little Wayne, like using Little Wayne lyrics to explain the poetry of Shakespeare. Because Little Wayne actually references and uses similar devices as Shakespeare in a lot of his work. And it's just this amazing, like, and at the time I was like, well, I kind of knew Little Wayne's music. The professor talks about how by teaching Shakespeare this way, he's become the biggest Little Wayne fan, but also his students are so engaged in um, like understanding Shakespeare in a way that was completely different. Like, and I think he just, he was a bit like, I'm finding it really hard to get people excited about Shakespeare, which shouldn't be hard because of how, how brilliant he is. And he's, he's just, and this whole essay is just like, you're just blown away. It's like, and if, if anything, it comes across like the writer is, the, the teacher is more into Little Wayne than he's into Shakespeare. And like that to me is what music journalism can do. Like that is why I'm not 
that's why I'm finding it really difficult to go I should just go be a social producer and because even being a social producer it was like how do I find a way to get some Vincent to talk about music she likes how do I find a way of like um I did a thread one day greatest opening lines to songs sounds really should like jejun as an idea and kind of you think oh we get some really obvious responses we got Questlove quote tweeting it with like uh, um q-tip lyric it was like it had like that one tweet of plain text reached a million people and everyone that was looking at it was going through it and checking out tracks and discovering like following people they didn't they've never heard of before because they happened to pick the same lyric as them and like you can not just disrupt but construct something by doing those little moments in someone's day um so i think yeah 16 year old me would probably be doing a bit more of that and again, I think it's it's important to remember that there is still, as much as everything goes like super quickly, there is still that little time to do these kind of things. Mm. And you just proved it, like just what you were saying about the social stuff that you were doing for BBC. Yeah. People have like 15 minutes in their day maybe to explore. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you spend I, them scrolling, you might as well, yeah. you know, put a track and a lot, in the background. And a lot of people get that kind of music education off the back of, the kind of times they were a student or something. I didn't go to uni, so I even missed that that bit of um, uh, spare time to sit around listening to records. Like I just made time to listen to records. Um, but I think there's something in the um, the the expert. Like I think journalists have got quite a big problem in that. I think they think that the audience have as much time to listen to music as they do because it's their job to listen to music all day. Um, and I always think about this 15 minute window that you maybe get in someone's day um, that they might check out two or three things or they might read one article. Um, and I think expecting anything more than that once a week um, from like trying to sound like 100,000 followers on Twitter. If I can get one person once a month even to go check out three things, then that's quite an achievement. Most people would assume that well to do that you need to post 50 things a day and like no you don't you just have to be really considerate of what you're posting and how you present it and like we've not even touched on intrigue and like how like one of the biggest lessons I had and it was something I already understood but I'd never heard verbalized so clearly was when I worked with Bat for Lashes she said I want people to see me before they hear me she was like it's really important to me there's a photo at the top of the press release because I've created a, a world and the first step into it is these twilight visuals. It's me and feathers and um, uh, animal print. And she's like, this, is, this whole world I've constructed begins with seeing it and stepping into it and the sound, and the, then hearing the soundtrack to it. Um, and you can do that on social media. You can intrigue with a few sentences or a word or a made up genre like I love making up genres I don't know I think you said this podcast was 40 minutes I've just looked at what the time was it's fine don't worry it's all good I think we're done I think we got it <laughs> out uh so thank you and whatever you're up to in terms of like getting with an artist in a car or whatever let me know I yeah. want to come <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the social media for that 